Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm George Sapio, and we are talking with Los Angeles playwright, solo artist, and stand-up comedian Lucy Wong. She is the author of numerous plays, among which her play Junk Bonds won the Kennedy Center Award for New American Plays, Best New Play with Sociopolitical Economic Significance, and landed her a two-page profile in the New York Times. She freelance writes, teaches, performs, mentors. She's an editor and an enthusiastic cook. She's currently a news editor and book reviewer for Indie Reader. She also teaches playwriting for eScript. We caught up with Lucy recently and asked her how she got into playwriting. They've had lives before playwriting. Very few of us actually grew up wanting to be playwrights. Um, we came to it through circuitous methods, um, myself included. And you're, you came to it by way of Wall Street, you were, you were a bond trader there. How did you get into bond trading in the first place? Well, um, when I was growing up, my, um, we were very poor. And then my mother left, abandoned us. And so money was always an issue. My, we were immigrants. It came over from Taiwan. And my father carpooled with someone who read the Wall Street Journal. And he used to give it to me after he was done, like at the end of the day. And I would read this, and he would tell me, um, to follow the stock market, like that's how you, how poor people get ahead in America. And I started following. And how old were you at this point? I I don't even remember. Like maybe in junior high, because I started um, junior achievement maybe in ninth grade. So maybe around ninth grade. Okay, so you're fourteen, fifteen, and you're sitting on a train reading the Wall Street Journal. Yes, I, I'm reading it, and I joined junior achievement. I'm learning about capitalism. I actually, uh, because my parents were English and uh, not native English speakers and were often um, told they weren't advanced in their careers, they couldn't get a promotion because their English wasn't good enough. Sure, yeah. My parents, in the beginning, wanted us, my brother and me, to really speak English and excel in English so that would never be a stumbling block. And I used to actually give speeches, I'm kind of embarrassed now, but I used to give speeches on free enterprise and how great capitalism was and why we came to America to be the land of opportunity. And But know, we were all brought up that way to believe that, you know, the, the financial jingoistic, uh, you know, the capitalism solves everything. We were. And we were also, you know, that hard work pays off and um, the, the stock market was a way to equalize or bootstrap yourself. I believe that so, totally when I grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I was the Alex Keaton in Family Ties. I mean, that's why I said I'm a little bit embarrassed. But um, So one day I had enough, you know, in my bank account or piggy bank, and um, I told my father to buy Monsanto, Litton Industries, and uh, Chrysler. And, <laughs> and my father... It did not think I knew anything. And um, so I did it. And I think growing up in Ohio, I went down to Maryland. I got a taxi cab. And I put my money into the um, Chrysler. How much money did you have with you? Wait a minute. How much did what? you invest this first time? That's the first time I invested. And I was like 15. How and much it, money did you have? Only like a couple of thousand dollars. Oh, okay. But All I right, think so. the stock was like three. Because this is around the time when um, they were deciding whether or not to have a bailout. I mean, we've been bailing out auto companies a lot Since, now. Yes, we And have. banks as well. But back then, it was, you know, it was unheard of. Right, yeah. And so everybody thought, and I just, I just had this hunch. 
um, that the government would not let Chrysler go under. And my father was like, no, no, we're not going to do it. And um, and I took my babysitting money down there. And because there's so few Asians in Akron, Ohio, at least when I was growing up, and um, there's this uh, kind of a stereotype, but it's sort of funny, too. It's like Asian don't raisin. So... Um, <laughs> My mother used to tell me that, that Asians will always look young for a long time. And uh, so they didn't ask me my age, and they let me open an account. And um, I won, and I was addicted then. And therefore, I thought... Sure, it's like going to Vegas you know, and hitting it big. Right, and so I had a fantasy um, stock market kind of pick. You know, some people play fantasy football or baseball, and right. I would always win. So I, my father never, you know, paid much attention, and he wouldn't take my advice, but his his carpool partner and I would trade tips and he could act on my tips, you know? I would just follow the the news and in the Wall Street Journal and it really was the Diary of the American Dream. And so that's where I got the idea that I was going to go to Wall Street and I was going to, of course, I ended up doing bonds instead of stocks because, you know, then I learned all that stuff in business school. Right. But, um, but and you also already I, had the instinct for this when you were, you know, like 14 or 15. Yeah, and, you know, in a way, corporations have so much drama, too. So oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Who Who's in the leadership? What are they making? Do we it's, want it? It's like How one they big, sick Walton's family. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that's really what made me go to business school and um, go to, to Wall Street. Yeah. And when I got to Wall Street, mortgage securities, uh, mortgage-backed securities were the, all the rage. And that's, what what that's year what was this? Um, I got there like in 87, 86. Okay, so we're still, we're, we're yeah, still talking Reagan. Yes. Yeah. We're, um, and we don't, the market doesn't tank right away. Well, wasn't it October of 87 that Black Friday hit? Yes. And I was like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> I have bad timing. Some, you know, I often think I was born too early or too late. It's like, yeah, it was really bad timing. A lot of people got laid off. And um, it was really... Yeah. So you worked on you worked on Wall Street for a number of years, yeah. and uh, you got attached to the mayor's office. You worked for uh, David Dinkins. Yes. What happened was um, after um, bond trading, I this is a I went to a party in Southampton. And I met somebody, and they told me Barry Sullivan, who used to be the president of Uni Chicago, right, and president of uh, First Chicago Bank. Um, he was looking for a deputy chief of staff. And would I be interested? And I thought, yes, I know who Barry Sullivan is. And I I went in the following Monday and I got the job. Nice. I I loved it because it was sort of the opposite. It was still high pressure. You're always putting out fires because when you work for the mayor, everybody who walks in your office thinks they because they're a taxpayer. If they're right. a taxpayer, I should say they you they own you like. <laughs> And with an election year... Maybe Nobody walks in out. without a complaint. Right. So it was like putting out fires every day or, and trying to not lose the vote or win the vote. It's like, if you don't fix this problem, I'm not going to vote for David and Dickens. I'm going to make life hell for you. And at the same time, it was glamorous because I got to hang out at Gracie Mansion. I got to, you know, shake hands and meet Bill Clinton, Nelson Mandela, you know, Hillary, Leon Panetta. You know, they all came through because New York... City being the mayor of, of that is sort of like a fiefdom. New York is of course, yeah. its own country. It, it well, 
growing up in New York myself, I, I irritate people by saying there's New York City and everything else is a suburb. Yeah. You know, California is a suburb. Yeah. Jupiter is a suburb. That's but, right. I think, uh, isn't it Dorothy Parker who said L.A. is 70, 72 suburbs in search of a city, and now maybe it's 135 suburbs in search of a city. Could very well be. Yeah. So, you, okay, so you're walking around in high-powered company, putting out fires right and left, having the time of your life, and then all of a sudden, David Dinkins is no longer mayor. And yeah, he loses. And right. everybody everybody is devastated. I mean, we've really worked hard. We put in a lot of volunteer hours. We were working, you know, 24-7. Right. And then all of a sudden, you've got to find something else to do. How, so you transitioned from here into playwriting? How did that How did that work? Well, it's really, you know, writing... I used to joke around writing um, saved my life, but um, when he, the way it, the mayor campaign works in New York is he lost, and so we, had, we were out of job like December 31st. And, you know, December is a month of spending. It's Christmas and Hanukkah. Absolutely, on parties. Yeah. Nobody's looking to hire anybody, and a lot of people were very depressed, myself included. Like, oh, my God, what a happy new year to me. <laughs> you know, exactly, I have no job. Yeah. And... Uh, so I started writing, and I wrote this short story, actually, and it was called, like, Number One Son, and it was a short story about being gay on Wall Street and, and how macho Wall Street is, and I shared it with some people at my writing group, and I joined a writing group during that period of time and, um, to pass the time, right. and they all said, this should be a play, and I wrote a play, and it became a finalist for the, like, dramatist, new dramatist, L. Weisberger Award. Sure. I thought, oh my God, my first play is in the top ten. And um, what play was this? It was called Number One Son. Okay. And so, the main reason it the main reason it's not on my resume anymore is because the wedding banquet came out and it had a similar theme. So I got trumped. Hmm. Sometimes you happens. get trumped in life. So how long was this playwriting or or script writing persona? buried within you did you write stuff when you were a kid did you make up stories did this did just come to, out of nowhere it didn't come out of nowhere i did try to write when i was growing up but as i joke around there are three career options for asian americans or for most of us it's like doctor physician md so anytime i did anything creative um like i you know my parents uh were very very against it they stopped it in their tracks like I used to take ballet. I, I liked ballet. I was like, no more ballet. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> piano, piano, they forced me to do. I, I could write, I could write for AP English, of course, because it's required. And I won some contests, public speaking and essay contests, but that came with monetary prizes. So if, it, if I won money, my parents would let me do it. And my parents used to say, we did not come from China to America for you to be a starving artist. Your play, Junk Bonds, yes. comes out soon after this. And... Yeah. There's a couple of things. First of all, it won awards from the Kennedy Center Fund for New American Plays yeah. and the Catherine and Lee Chillicote Foundation. Congratulations. That's wonderful. But I noticed that you were also called the female David Mamet. I'm wondering, you know, did you pepper your play with four-letter words, or why did you get that moniker? I think it's two reasons, actually. One, um, there's a stereotype, which I, I try to tackle in Chinese girls on swear, that... Um, 
Chinese girls don't swear. We're all butter. We're all mothers and daughters, daughters and mothers. But two, it's um, it's about the trade Wall Street and about who you can trust. And it, if I were going to do it realistically, uh, bond traders swear. They they swear all the time, and I, it just came out naturally. I wasn't trying to offend anybody's ears. It's just if that's how people speak, you want to capture that. And I think that um, because bond trading is so high pressure, I mean you're trading billions of dollars in, within, like, seconds. Right. There's no time to mince words. And so everything is sort of, like, in your face. Um, there is a poetry and a jargon to it in terms of, like, every every culture has its own language and bond trading culture has a certain language. But that, that's why I think that I got that female David Mamet. Because uh, you went from being called the Hemingway of Memos to the female David Mamet. Oh, it's the other way seems, around. Oh, yeah, you're right. Was you're it the right. other way around? No, no, you're right, you're right. Okay. Well, you know, I think that um, it's just unexpected. Like, one time at Capital Rep, we had an audience talk back after John Font, and I swear to God, this man came up to me and said, Chinese girls shouldn't swear. And then, you know, years later, and I was really, I was taken aback by that, like, oh. He said he didn't. He had he knew some Chinese girls lived across the street, and they never swore. And I'm like, what? I mean, imagine being told this in front of like a live audience, right? Like, oh. And um, the and um, years later, when I told Gloria Steinem that, she said, "That's the title of your one woman show." But New York City, or any city really, but New York City, as we were discussing, has a lot of people, a lot of pro- therefore a lot of problems and conflict because you can't please everyone. And you have to distill problems to the mayor or the deputy mayor in very simple, concrete language. And, you know, because he, he's got, Mayor Dingus has a million things to do every day. So let's say, you know, there's this huge problem this businessman is having and some merchants are having on 6th Avenue. Because on Avenue America, they kept ripping it up, putting it back. And I have to tell him in a page or less. Mayor Dinkins, you know, what the problem is, what my recommendations are, whose point of view, and and Barry Sullivan especially hated purple pros. He's like, mm. get rid of the purple. I just want to know the facts, keep it short, snappy, digestible. Brevity is the soul of survival? Yes. Yeah, so that's how, and, and um, I guess I got really good at it. And, you know, if you think about it, it prepared me for Twitter. I mean, every, oh, sure, yeah. our lives have just gotten shorter and shorter. It's like, oh, no, I had a page before, but now I have 140 characters. I used to work for an editor when I was working for People Magazine who basically would look at uh, these one-page things that we would put in the magazine. He'd say, that's too long. What you want is these four- to eight-word summations of any major topic. Because that's all people are going to want to read. The shorter it gets, regardless of whether it's true or not, the more it's going to be read. That's what people will gravitate towards. I think I think that's um, t- turned out to be true. Everybody yeah. wants the bottom line. Bottom, you know, that's that's really what I had to do in the mayor's yeah. office. Is give me the bottom line. The bottom yeah. line. Don't don't. How do you explain a complexity, all right, like the plot of a play or? A dramatic situation that a character finds himself in and yet make it brief enough and streamlined enough to be valid. What's what's your process like for that? You know, I think now, as the, as the years go by or the plays, as I've progressed, I am less wordy and I probably underwrite my first draft and I have to go add it back in. And I, I notice the difference between junk bonds and like plays I write now. I'm less wordy. Um, 
and to the point. I think I don't have an easy answer for that. I think that um, I just try to let the language speak for itself because I think um, everything you say, I say, has subtext or could be interpreted with broader meaning. Absolutely. And so I just try to you pick words or sentences that kind of hint at that and let the backstory come through that. Okay. How many versions of a play do you go through before you actually foist it upon an audience? And have, and when you do, is it in a reading, staged reading? Uh, how does that go? I try to do a staged reading. Sometimes I've had to do a cold reading. And I try to do maybe three drafts. Um, and the reason is, when cold reading, sometimes people, you know, they're just reading it for the first time. They don't know what the story is yet. I mean, you don't know on page one how it ends. And oh, absolutely, you know. yeah. Right, and sometimes um, a good actor can mask bad writing, and a bad actor can botch your play. So if, 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 <laughs> never you know, happened. You know, there are no bad actors, just miscast actors. But um, so that's why stage readings are a little bit more helpful. Is like, all right, they've gotten to read the material at least once, and they kind of know where the story's going, and we can kind of um, together figure out what is clear, what's unclear, what works, where the journey is going. Um, I tend, that's why sometimes writing groups are are hard, because when people only bring in like 10 pages, they don't know what's going on later, you know? Right. So I try not to do that. I try to wait till I have the whole, whole draft written, um, because also you're very susceptible if you share an impartial, um, an incomplete draft with someone to people's comments. They could kill something before you even have a chance to fly. I understand that completely. I generally don't myself uh, release my plays until I've got the fourth or fifth draft and I'm, I'm tired of looking at it. Yeah. Then when I know I can't go any farther, then I will, you know, uh, um, throw it at people and see what sticks. You've got, according to what I'm looking at here, you've got so far 13 published plays, eight monologues. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Um, what are you working on? Are you working on now? Uh, any, anything now? I'm working on a couple things. I'm working on Top Bananas, which is my hilarious send-up of affirmative action, gender, equality, the economy, American mm -hmm. ingenuity, and bananas. Because I, I studied the, how bananas became an industry and changed our lives. You know, we have refrigerator trucks because of bananas. It's the number one food eaten in the world and how bananas grow. In uh, in hospitable climates or places that you never thought bananas would grow, and I thought, you know, it's also pejorative for Asian Americans, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And I thought, let's take this all and make it a play about, a, but a funny play. Right. And um, so I'm working on that. I'm trying to find a home for it. It's had a cold reading and a stage reading, and um, I'm also debating whether or not to do Chinese Ghost Don't Swear. As you know, I wanted to bring it to Ithaca, sure. and I was. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and we're so party. sad that you couldn't. We would have loved to have seen this. I think, um, you know, Chinese Girls Don't Swear is just really funny. And uh, my friend approached me the other day and said, would I do it in L.A. with her? Maybe we could do um, a double bill, one, a one woman show. Yeah. So it's not completely dead. Um, I for, am for, for our listeners, I just want to butt in for one second here for our listeners. Um, there is a YouTube video clip of parts of Chinese girls don't swear. Uh, if you get on YouTube and just uh, look up Lucy Wong, 
you'll probably find that coming up near the top of the list or at the top of the list. I'm working on a novel inspired by Chinese Girls Don't Swear as well because a New York agent told me that it should be a book. So that's sort of what I'm doing. And then the last thing I'm sort of doing is I'm writing jokes for late night. I'm taking this class. Okay. late night jokes. I think it's important as artists that we always push ourselves and stretch. And that's, I, I don't have any end goal yet in line, but um, it's fun. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like mm-hmm. working out, working a new muscle. Sure, yeah, branching out and uh, seeing seeing where else your, your writing abilities lie. Or, you know, shaking it loose by, yeah, trying something else. Um, yeah, oh, I do know, I do want to say one thing. I think I my work is more comedic. One thing that runs through all my plays is a, is comedy, and I didn't realize that until some people pointed it out and mistake, mistook me for a professional uh, stand-up comedian, and then I thought, all right, I might as well do it. And one of the things I like about comedy, when you talk about process, my, one of my processes, can I make somebody laugh? Because I discovered that comedy is revolutionary, right? You can't force somebody to think something is funny if they don't. Right. You can force someone to fear you, respect you, even to love you. But you can't, if you don't think of something as funny, you you recognize canned laughter. Absolutely. And even yeah. in this class that I'm taking, you know, you know when we share our jokes in class, you know right away if it's funny to those people or not. Oh, because, absolutely. Because yes. it's involuntary. I mean, you can't say it's a bad joke and laugh. Or I mean, You know you when the response but, is genuine. Yes. So that's one thing in my process now is like I'm more consciously, more conscious that I have this gift of comedy and what comedy can do. And I decided that comedy is revolutionary. Like so many plays I go to, I don't know about you, George, are preached to the choir. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, and I think it gives theater a bad rap and I'm trying to put the play back into play. Like you go to a classical concert and I used to joke around, do I have to be dead like the composer? Because, you know, you have to sit still and just listen and I've, I'm not I've, just... I've noticed that one of the things uh, with uh, playwrights, I'm not going to say in general, but with some playwrights is that they write not for the play itself but for the message within the play and I tell my, my playwriting students don't write the politics write the characters we can only see the, uh, the consequences of what it is that you really want to talk about through what happens to your character. Bring us your character. Don't bring us your, your political point of view. I totally agree with you. I think there's nothing... I mean, just think about when we were teenagers, when our parents told us what we had to do. Did we listen? No. No, so of course what not. Is, what, would, what would make you pay to go see a show where you are told or screamed at or, you know, beaten up because of how, you, how you're supposed to feel and believe or vote? And, see, the thing with comedy is that you can get them to laugh and you kind of disarm them, and then they'll be open to the idea, oh, because I've had people, you know, I grew up in Ohio, a swing state. I've had people come to my show and tell me they're not for uh, gay rights, and they'll tell me afterwards they've changed their mind. And the same thing, that's why I did Chinese Girls Don't Swear. It's like, okay, I'll never look at an Asian-American woman the same way after your show. But if I had told them, you know, you treat me like this, whatever, they would I think there's also this pressure, and I think the reason there's pressure that theater is supposed to mean more than a film, for example, and that we have to have a message. And I sort of 
I don't know if you agree with that, but I sort of agree with that. I feel like there's so many plays, so many books, so many paintings that I want my work to stand out in some way or be different. And so I do think we have the pressure to, to have a message. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so then the craft or the artistry is really how do you tell, how do you get your point of view across in a way that's not preachy? Exactly. Exactly yeah. what you said. It's through our characters. It's like if you identify with your character and, and can empathize, then maybe you see why that point of view is valid or not valid. When I go to the theater, yeah. I want to have something, I want to come out changed. Yeah. In some way, I want a, a, a point of view challenged. I want a new way of thinking. I want to come out carrying the play and the characters with me in a way that makes me think big way, small way about the world that I live in. That's how I want to feel too. I always thought theater was like magic. Yeah. You went in, you went in one way, you came out changed a little bit. And, and I, when that curtain goes up, Mm -hmm. that I'm always like, it's like unwrapping a present. I feel like, what am I going to discover today? Yeah. It's plus it's live people in front of you. And I think that makes a highly critical difference. When you go to a movie, you know it's a screen. Yeah. You know it's it's uh, uh, a billion little computer pixels all dancing for your benefit, and you can get up and walk out, turn your back on it, and it will cease to exist. Yeah. But when you sit down at a theater, there are real-life people up there in front of you. And I think that translates somewhere into your subconscious as, if it's done well, this is real. Yeah. These are real people up there and it, it has a depth, it has it it has more you know, reality to it. Yeah, and they're taking a risk. You Absolutely. Know? So there's yeah. a little bit of that thrill of live theater, what will happen? With a lot of playwrights and and, and I think it's with you also, um, just going over and reading everything that I've that I've been able to find about what you've done, um, the question of identity, not just an Asian American thing, which I know you do write about Chinese girls don't swear, big red little tiger, birds nest soup. These are, these are all Asian themed plays, but writing as a woman, writing as a woman who's been on wall street, writing as who Lucy Wong is. Where does that come out in your writing? Or do you have issues that you do want to talk about that you feel the need to discuss in public through your plays? I think what I'm trying to be is, you know, my dream would be to be called a significant American voice and, and not necessarily Asian American voice. I, yes, I'm Asian American, and I do write about what it's like to be, but I think I really write for a multicultural world. For example... You know, even though Chinese Ghost on sort of talks about maybe some of the experiences that happened to me, it's not, some of these experiences are universal. And like some, most of my plays are multicultural casting. You know, it's like, um, and sometimes that's come to haunt me too. Like the Asian American theaters will say, you don't have enough Asian American characters in this. <laughs> or I'll send it to um, a regular theater in LA and they'll say, we can't cast it. We, we don't have an Asian American in our, it, and I'm like, not one? And you, this is L.A. You're not going to go find one? Don't you want one? <laughs> and like, yeah. but they have everybody else. But the world I live in, everybody, you know, we it, it is a rainbow coalition. So I try to write plays like that. And some of my plays 
I don't even use last names. And it's very challenging to write a play and a character where the ethnicity doesn't matter and the, the dialogue would match. And I've even had a play where I made it male or female because I wanted to, I wanted to see if people would do it um, two men or two women or one man and a woman. I've, I've been experimenting with a lot because I think that's the world we live in. But a lot of the theater that we go to is still not reflecting that diversity. A lot of theaters like to reflect diversity because they feel it's they're answering a need for voices that have not yet been heard to any critical or important extent. But I feel like they're not mixing it up. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they might do an Asian American play and then an African American play or and then a gay or a lesbian play, but it's not like a gay character, an Asian character and, and an African American character and a white guy walk into a bar. You know, right. you know, I haven't seen those plays. Exactly. Well, it's one can also argue the flip side of this is that uh, the ethnicity and the gender issues can be set aside in favor of the generic problems that all people go through. I mean, it's bad decisions make the best drama, as we know, and bad decisions are not restricted to any one subset of, you know, ethnic or gender culture. So technically, as you're saying, you know, you can leave off the last names, you can leave off the gender casting, you can represent this particular element of drama with characters that have yet to be cast until they go through the casting process. That's right. And one of my plays, Good Morning America, I was in New York for 9-11. I, I visited some friends, and this is where I think sometimes Art did save me because I might have been in that building. Wow. But Good Morning America is about how some people, um, t how people interpret tragedy and how it affects their lives. And there's even some comedy in it. And um, most of the characters in that play are, are New Yorkers uh, or people not in New York but have something to say about the tragedy. They don't have last names. And I guess I'm, I'm using that as an example because tragedy happens to all of us, large-scale, small-scale, and um, it doesn't matter what ethnicity we are. Well, Lucy Wong, it's been an absolute thrill having you on the show. Thank you so much for stopping by, and uh, we wish you luck with all of your further writing, and please apply and come to the Ithaca Fringe Festival. And Thank you, George. I, I so enjoyed our conversation. I can't wait to come to Ithaca. I want to make it happen. <laughs>